it is great to be here with you this evening, and uh, my prayer is that I would serve you guys well in the preaching of God's Word. Just a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Mark Petrus, obviously, um, and I have been married to my gorgeous wife there, uh, Kendra, for 16 years, going on 16 years here, December 15th, and we have four kids. Now, usually when we tell people they have, we have four kids, they go, you have four kids? <laughs> and then we follow up by saying we homeschool. And they go, you homeschool? What are you, nuts? So, I mean, this is how my wife gets greeted at Aldi's, all right? She goes shopping at Aldi's, and she's getting milk out of the freezer, out of the cooler. And somebody comes up to her and says, boy, you drink all that milk? You should get a cow. So, you know, anyway. Well, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'd like to read the text first and then get into the passage. So hear from the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, I just thank you, God, for the privilege to preach your word. I pray that you would help me to be clear, concise, and that your spirit would be mightily at work in my heart and those here. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you have been here. I guess it's been three months, right? Three months. Three, three months of listening to Ronnie preach and teach through First Peter. First uh, Peter is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, one of the things I didn't share with you is that I have um, just about eight years of ministry experience pastoral ministry experience in church planting. And so uh, I know what it's like to plant a church. I also know that it is very difficult work, um, and it's a work of the spirit. It really is, uh, not a work of the flesh of, of man. And at the beginning of this year, our church closed, January 31st. Uh, we were there in Oberlin, uh, that we still live in Oberlin, and we were there for about three and a half years um, before uh, the church closed. So all of a sudden, we found ourselves without a job, without community, without friends, in some sense, um, and without a career. I mean, you, if you would have told me that I would, you know, had a church closed and I wouldn't be pastoring anymore, I would have told you you were nuts. Well, um, 
Ronnie was my ministry coach, and so was Jeff, uh, the elders at Sussman's Church. And they said, hey, come on down and heal up. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been healing up. God's provided a job uh, in just the right timing. I now went from, I went from church planting to the growing industry. So, you know, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> so anyway, so as you have been or looking at First Peter, studying it on your own, as well as hearing the preaching of the word, uh, we've seen throughout this book as Peter's writing to the church, the exiles, they're under heavy persecution. They are, they are in it. They are in the fire. And Peter just doesn't bang them over the head and say, do better, right? He gives them the gospel. He reminds them of who their identity is in. And that's what we've seen throughout the book. He, re he reminds us, the church, of who our identity is in how we can and should respond to suffering in our lives and continually reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ, that God will and does give grace to his people, that God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So as I was praying through this passage and studying it, the main point really jumped out at me in verse 5. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're honest like me, I don't like the first part of that verse. God opposes the proud. But I love the second part of the verse. God gives grace to the humble. Part of the reason why is just what I shared with you earlier. I've experienced it. Not only experienced it through the cross of Christ, but experienced it in my own life of how he's provided and he's heard our prayers and he's answered them. So he does the same thing with the elders. As we look at this passage, he's going to do the same thing with the elders, the leaders, the shepherds the caregivers of, the primary caregivers of the church and reminds them of their true identity, their need for gracious and humble attitudes and their reward in Jesus. So if you're taking notes or if you're following along on an iPad or whatever, um, here are the three points that I'm gonna hit on. Christ shapes our identity. Christ sanctifies our heart attitudes. And, you know, sanctifies, you know, you hear that word and you go, well, that's a big fancy word. Well, it is, but it's a great word because it means to set apart, to make holy, to make us as believers, for those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, to make us more into Christ. And then the, the last point is he secures our reward. So this church was under heavy fire. So if the church was under heavy fire, you can better believe that the leaders of the church were under heavy fire. And the way that, I don't know if you heard when I was reading, but what, what Peter is doing here is Peter is, <laughs> he cares about what's going on in their hearts. Because that's where the battle is. And in some ways, this title of this message could be Elders, 
Shepherds, pastors are people too. I think it was Tim Keller that said, our hearts are idle factories. And with that said, they were tempted to go either power hungry or they were tempted to lead under compulsion. In some ways, if you look at the the logic of this text, leading under compulsion ends up where they want to have selfish gain and then power mongers. Maybe some of you came out of churches where pastors were like that, where they cared about that. And Peter's reminding them, not so among the shepherds of God. So looking at our first point, Christ shapes our identity. Look with me there in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now stop right there. Now that word so there could also be translated therefore or now or in light of this. And so what is Peter talking about? Well, if you look back in verse 19, he's referring back to this, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, last week, Ronnie talked about the judgment and really it's more the discipline of God on the church and how it starts with the church and then moves towards the world. It starts with the elders of the church. The elders are going to be judged. That's why in James chapter 3, teachers will be judged more harshly because they're being accountable to preaching God's word. So suffering, God's discipline was expected not just for the church, but the leaders of it. And I thought about that. I said, you know what? And I've been there. True character (laughs) is revealed when under pressure. So Peter goes on to say, look with me there, as, um, well, we've already read it. Um, Notice what Peter didn't say. Peter didn't say, he didn't go off on a soapbox and say, I'm the Apostle Peter. He didn't say, I'm the fiery preacher. He didn't say, I'm the one who's performed miracles in Jesus' name, and now I count it worthy to be blessed to suffer for Jesus' name. He didn't say any of that. He He didn't, like, lay out his moral resume there. What he ended up doing was reminding them of who their identity is in. And he identifies with them in their suffering. Do you see that? He describes who he is, a fellow elder. That's the present. Then he goes on to say, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That's the past. Now, if you know Peter, you know he didn't really have that great of a witness of the sufferings of Christ, especially when you look at the Gospels. And we're going to get into that just a little bit here. And then he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, future. So what is Peter doing here? He's exhorting his fellow elders and at the same time confessing his need for the Gospel. So Peter understands that without Jesus, 
he would have no hope. I mean, think about it. Without Jesus, Peter would never have become an elder. Without Jesus, he would have never identified himself with the sufferings of Christ. And without Jesus, he would not have a future glory. So let's slow down and think about Peter a little bit. For those of you that might be familiar with the Gospels, Peter is seen as, in one hand, confessing Christ, and then the next hand, he's rebuking Christ. Next, we see him walking on water. Next, we see him drowning in water. Don't you just love Peter? Next, he's claiming his loyalty to Christ, but then he's denying him. And then he's being ashamed of Christ, and at the very end of the Gospel of John, he's loving Christ. In fact, even before then, where he starts weeping after his denial, he's loving Christ, and he's repenting. Even Jesus said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And I've given him permission to do that. But you will come back even stronger. Boy, what great words of encouragement there. And here's the thing. Get this. I mean, this is Peter talking. Why do we, like, resonate with Peter in the Bible, right? I think he's really representing all the other disciples. They just didn't want to say it. <laughs> Get this, God used every bit of it. He used his weaknesses, he used his failures, he used his botched words, his botched suffering in Christ. He used all of it. So here's the point. Our identity is not in what we have done for Christ, but in what he has done for us and through us by his life, death, and resurrection. And that is a lifetime lesson that we will have, I mean, for the rest of our lives. So let's think about you. <laughs> I, I want to encourage you right now. You guys have been going, this campus has been going now for about three months. Like I said before, church planning is very hard work. When I was in church planning, I thought, okay, I'm building the church. I'm building the church. I'm going to build the church through people. Yes, this is going to be great. I didn't see the church grow. So I looked back at myself. I said, well, then I must have failed. And I want to encourage you that what I found out was that as much as I thought I was building the church, Christ was building me. He was shaping my identity. And so as you have been a part of this church, some of you I got to talk with a little bit. Some of you are just visiting for the first time. Others of you have been here uh, sporadically. Others of you have been coming on a regular basis. Christ is doing 10,000 more things than you realize in being a part of this church. He is shaping your identity. Amen. I mean, it's not about how great you are. It's about how, God, how good God is that he would even choose to do that.
for us. So how has Christ shaped your identity? If you look back this past year even, and you were able to see kind of a timeline of your life, and where would you say, and you'd point to and go, now that is where Jesus was refining me in the fire. That's where, when I was going through that suffering time and the, pa- the, the words of God were just jumping off of the pages. When I was going, through, my wife and I were going through the fiery time of not having a job, not having a church, not having a community, the words were literally jumping off the page. I could not get out of the book of Psalms. I wish I could spend more time on this, but we need to move on. So after Peter humbly lays out of who he is in Christ, he now moves to exhort the elders. Look at me there in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd, care for, that sort of thing. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And we'll stop right there. Notice again what Peter doesn't do. Peter doesn't focus on their leadership abilities. He doesn't focus on leadership principles. He doesn't focus on communication skills. He doesn't focus on personality. Not that any of those things are bad, but we as a people, we make them more important than what they should be. And so, what does he focus on? He focuses on their hearts. And even though that this passage is, the pointed application is to elders, the fact that he focuses on their hearts levels the playing ground. Elders are sheep too. (laughs) So we have a lot to learn as sheep from this passage. Not that I wanted to turn this into a farming analogy, but anyway. So I love what he does here. He first breaks out and says, you know what? Shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, the idea of compulsion is the idea of grudgingly serving. Uh, The fact that our hearts aren't into it, that we're just kind of going through the motions. And I'm not just talking about serving God in the church, I'm I'm talking about serving God as a believer in Jesus Christ. In and out of the church. So, you don't believe me probably, right? (laughs) This has huge gospel implications for our lives. Think about this. Do you wake up in the morning, Monday morning, and have a, a joy in your heart that you're going to go to, the, go to your work like you did the first day of work? Probably not. <laughs> Even my heart of thanksgiving that I had a job <laughs> wore off in about three months. <laughs> what about your role as a spouse? 
Do you serve your husband or wife out of a willing heart? Or are you just going through the motions? What about Christmas? I mean, come on. <laughs> Christmas is the season of compulsion. <laughs> Where you're hearing constantly from the culture about, and this is the only time you really, really hear from the culture, the world is, you got to be out there doing kind things, loving things, and so on. But then after that, put on the New York face, and oh, I'm sorry, that was a bad comment. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> You know, maybe you've lost a loved one. And Christmas is just a reminder of what you've lost. And you're tired of putting on the face that everything's okay. But deep down inside, your heart is breaking. And let me just encourage you right now that if that's you, I don't even know if that's you, but because I don't know you very well, but God does. And he's near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. You know, an area, well, before I get there, so, so here's the point. Apart from Christ and his sanctifying work in our lives by the Spirit, we cannot live a life free from compulsion. We cannot live a life free from grudgingly serving others and serving him. And then being empowered to serve him willingly, humbly, and selflessly. Now, an area in my life, and this is confession time, an area in my life that I am serving grudgingly that the Lord's revealed to me is in parenting. My wife and I, we were in uh, a parenting class that felt like it was forever, but, but, and we really didn't agree with this method of parenting that we were, we were like, why are we in this class again? Uh, well, there were friends of ours, and we were taking it, and a lot, the emphasis had to do a lot with behavior more behavior modification of civil, being civil at the, uh, the dining room table versus greeting somebody, standing up and greeting somebody that's older than them in the room. Or discipline flow charts so that you know what's going on in the discipline. Is your child being childish or foolish? Well, I don't know if it was this parenting method that we were trying to use or if it was just our own sinful hearts, I'll, I'll, I'll just say my own sinful heart. Well, one, one evening we ended up turning a con non-conflict situation with our kids into a conflict situation. We started to exasperate our children and by the end of the evening, my oldest was really upset, then my wife was really upset and our two younger children are going, what happened? And I'm saying, what happened, God? Bring peace to our home. Forgive us. And after more tears were shed, I said, honey, we need to go back upstairs. And we need to make this right with our kids. And so... We went upstairs to our two oldest because the uh, two younger were already sleeping. That was a grace gift. <laughs> and we came into the room and told my daughter to come down off her loft bed 
and we just hugged her. And we asked her to forgive us. And then my son came in the room, what are you doing? <laughs> and we invited him to come in and we just had a group hug and we cried together. Listen, no parenting book, <laughs> no parenting method out there can produce that kind of fruit. God used that situation in our lives to humble us and to see our need for him and to cry out to him. And that is why that change took place in our hearts. Not because of some disciplined flow chart. So as we move on in the text here, prior to that, So where are you serving grudgingly? Where in your life have you just kind of gone through the motions? What is the Holy Spirit telling you where you need to change? By God's grace. So moving on to the text we see here. Peter going on and saying, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That word domineering means to lord over. Some translations actually say that, lording over. Well, the implication here is that these elders in this suffering church were being tempted. They were being tempted to take things into their own hands, which ends up happening when you're serving under compulsion, and they were tempted to lord over people rather than love them. Well, there's a big difference, isn't there? Lording over people turns into manipulation. Loving people leads them to the cross. Now, you know, we might not be in charge of anybody. We're not an elder or a shepherd or whatever, but we certainly know what it's like to be in power. We want power. We want to be in control, don't we? I mean, that's why we get anxious, because we're not in control anymore. And Ronnie will probably hit upon this next week about not being anxious, <laughs> but instead humbling ourselves and casting our cares. And I'm not going to say any more than that, because Ronnie can finish that. Jesus had some really harsh words convicting words to say to his disciples and he was on the way to the cross. Get this, he's on the way to the cross. He's going to die and his disciples, the 12 of them, are on the road with him and you know what they're arguing about? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. What? <laughs> they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest and in Luke's version, that's in Mark's version, in Luke's version, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest on the night that he was betrayed. Here he is, he's breaking bread with them. In John chapter 13, he's just taken off his robe. He's washed their feet. He's showing them what a servant is. And they are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. You just want to say, get a clue. <laughs> but we need to get a clue as well. And what does Jesus say to him? 
he says, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, lord over their people. It will not be so among mine. It will not be so among you. For I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You want to know what power looks like, biblically speaking? Humble, sacrificial service. Maybe you're here today and you, uh, you've got a riff in your family and Christmas is just a reminder of that riff. That torn relationship. You want to show them God's power. Find a way to humbly, sacrificially serve them. It's amazing how those things, and even with unbelievers, how those things work. Because it's communicating you care. And you're humbling yourself and you're saying, how can I serve you? So power in God's economy is humble, sacrificial service. The last point here is Christ secures our reward. So we've seen Christ shapes our identity. We've seen that Christ sanctifies our attitudes. And Christ secures our reward. Look with me there in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I'm sorry, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Boy, I love those three little words. You will receive. You will receive. Not because of anything that you have done or will do, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross it's a promise that we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. This passage has to do with pastors and elders. I'm not going to get a crown. <laughs> Maybe you're not saying that. Anyway, <laughs> a crown was like a victor's wreath. Basically, you won, you're victorious, that sort of thing. But if you turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 12, let me show you that. James chapter 1, verse 12. Which is just a couple, which is just a book over, actually. Listen to what it says here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, this is not promised to anybody. This is promised to those who love him, who cherish him, and know that they're cherished by God the Father through Christ. So think about this. You're going to receive a crown. But then later, in the book of Revelation, we see this glorious picture. We see this glorious picture of the elders, the 24 elders that are worshiping God around the throne. And what do they do? They bow down, that's right. And what else do they do? They cast their crowns before God Almighty. And they say, worthy 
are you, God, to be praised in honor and all glory and might to you. It's a rough paraphrase, but you get the point. <laughs> if the 24 elders cast their crowns, you better believe we're going to be casting ours before the throne. Now, you might say, well, why would we be promised a crown, but then we turn around and then we give it back? Because the crown is not the prize. It's Jesus, <laughs> the Lamb of God who was slain on our behalf to take away the sins of the world, to restore this broken world the way God intended it to be. Christ secures our reward, not by what we've done, but what he has done already on the cross. So how does this work out in everyday life? Here's how. I've got a boss right now who has a 12-year-old son who's waiting for the results of whether or not he has been diagnosed with colon cancer. 12 years old. And my boss is a very strong believer. He owns a company. And he's sending out and letting people know that God is his refuge. That that's his real reward. He'd love to see his son heal. He'd love to get those results back and say that he, his son doesn't have cancer, it's benign. But he's letting his employees know and a lot of them don't know Christ. And he's saying, Christ is my reward. He's secured it. And even if my son has cancer, you can't take Christ away from me. Because with Christ, he'll see his son again. In the resurrection. So moving on here, and we're going to finish up here with verse 5. And I love this. Clothe yourselves, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace for the humble. Do you realize that phrase, which is out of Proverbs chapter 3, I think it's 34, says, it's, it's really the gospel in a nutshell. God opposes the proud. That's the bad news. But he gives grace to the humble. It's the proud that opposes God. It's God who humbles the proud. And that is what we see throughout the whole storyline of redemption. Is God constantly humbling his people. And then lifting them up. And exalting them. And then here comes Jesus on the scene. I mean, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. If you're new to the church and you're still trying to figure out this Christianity thing, that is what Christmas is all about. God humbling himself, coming down as a man because God could not die for our sin. So he had to send himself in the form of man born of a virgin who then lived a perfect life died a humbling death on the cross, and then three days gloriously resurrected from the grave. 
so that we would be humbled by his grace. A gift of salvation that we can experience now and in the future. Now you might say, why? Why would a God? Why, why, why do I need to humble myself before God? In fact, I don't like that word humble. It has too many words in it. Conjures pictures, oppression, submission. Maybe that's what you're thinking. But biblically speaking, that word is a very beautiful word. So why? Why submit to a holy God? Because God humbled himself for you. So let me leave you with two things. First, If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, boy, Ronnie or Jeff or myself, love to talk with you about what that looks like. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let God continue to humble you. Because when you do, you're shaped more into his identity and less your own. And the other thing is, and this is kind of a, it's kind of, I was thinking about this this morning, but I'm going to do it again. <laughs> the next thing is admit you're proud. Because everybody that was born into this world is proud. Thinking that we're in charge, but we're really not. So admit you're proud. Admit yourself righteous. And continue to depend on God's grace. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you, Lord, for how your spirit works in tandem with your word and how it humbles us. And I pray, Lord, that we would take your word, we would live it out humbly among a people that desperately needs you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother.